Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. The Native Americans referred to Virginia Shenandoah Valley as Daughter of the Stars. Yet, both the Federal Union and the Confederacy knew it to be the breadbasket of Virginia. And that made it a theater for military operation. Both sides very aware of Stonewall Jackson's assessment in 1862. If the valley is lost, then Virginia is lost. Played out in 1864, this is the story of the dramatic ebb and flow to control that strategic site. This is the story of the Second Valley Campaign. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, Stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was the evening of Tuesday, May 10th, 1864, when a courier on a lathered horse reined up before the main building at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. Earlier, it had been a day of rest and reflection, the first anniversary of the death of former VMI professor, Lieutenant General Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson. But the mood was about to change. Though many of the cadets were in bed by nine that night, the frenzied arrival and sight of officers gathered around the statue of George Washington caught the attention of those still up and they spread the news that something was afoot. In the valley the Native Americans called the Daughter of the Stars, there was an emergency, and Major General John C. Breckinridge, commander of the Confederate Department of Western Virginia, needed the cadets. At first light, 200 gathered, their ages from 15 to 25. They were to march 32 miles northeast for Staunton, Lee's army had been hammered at the wilderness and was now taking federal blows near a place called Spotsylvania Courthouse. That army needed supplies, and the Shenandoah Valley was its breadbasket. And once again, it was filled with federal invaders who, too, understood the valley's importance. Two years before, Stonewall Jackson had executed the brilliant Valley Campaign. His small but mobile force had cleared the Shenandoah of Union forces and threatened Washington City. The resulting Union consternation kept reinforcements from Major General George McClellan's Peninsula Campaign and helped to save Richmond. But much had transpired since those heady days. In the East, there had been Second Manassas, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and now Grant's Overland Campaign. Still, Professor Jackson's mantra held true. If the valley is lost, Virginia is lost. 
Geographically, it is nestled between the protective arms of the Blue Ridge Mountains on the east and the Alleghenies on the west. In Lexington, the Shenandoah River springs forth and flows north-northeastward to Harper's Ferry. The width of the valley is about 30 miles wide on the average. Its length, about 165 miles. In its center, like a spine, the Massanutten Mountain cleaves the valley for some 45 miles. Eleven passes cut through this, Virginia's breadbasket. Within those parameters, there were few great plantations, few slaves, no conspicuously wealthy families. Yet, there was little poverty. And yes, of great interest to Lee and his veterans, vast amounts of meat, flour, corn, fruit, poultry, milk, vegetables, eggs, and butter. Stuff that would fill the belly of those in the Army of Northern Virginia, those desperately trying to stop the bulldogged head-on collision strategy and tactics of U.S. Grant. And make no mistake, Grant also understood the importance of the Shenandoah Valley. Federal occupation of it would not only cut off the valley's rail lifeline, the Virginia Central Railroad, but control it. Union occupation would threaten the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad and Lee's left flank to the east down in the Virginia Piedmont. In Grant and the War Department's assessment, it was time to take the valley, and few in Confederate gray defended it in the spring of 1864. There were only 1,600 cavalrymen, and they were in Stanton under Brigadier General John Daniel Imboden. His nearest help was a 6,500-man force under John C. Breckinridge, and they were 155 miles to the southwest in Dublin, Virginia. With this southern presence, Federals, acting under the grand strategy as designed by Grant, sought to strike the valley from the west by way of Dublin and from the north. And so would begin the Valley Campaign of 1864. As we've alluded, the Confederate ranking officer was the Kentuckian Breckinridge. In 1856, he, at the age of only 35, had been the youngest elected vice president in U.S. history. Four years later, he was an unwilling candidate for president. As a U.S. senator, after seven states had seceded, he stayed on, working tirelessly for compromise, but by late summer, followed his head and heart. Commissioned a Brigadier General, Breckinridge led troops at Shiloh, Corinth, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga. Sadly, like many others, he ran afoul of Braxton Bragg, and it took some time to recover. He came east, was named head of the Confederate Department of Western Virginia in 1864, and now, moving against him from out of the north, were troops under Union Major General Franz Siegel. Before the war, he had been superintendent of schools and leader of a large German community in St. Louis. In fact, the German-American community in the North numbered 1.25 million, of the North some total 20 million. Mr. Lincoln needed Siegel's and German-American support, so he received a commission. Trumpeting his military prowess, Siegel claimed that back in his native country, he had led troops in three battles during the German revolts in the 1840s. 
He failed to mention that in all three, he had been soundly defeated. On Sunday the 15th of May, the two, Siegel and Breckenridge, clashed under leaden skies at New Market in the valley. The 4,087 men of Breckenridge enjoyed initial success against Siegel's 6,275. But when a gap in the southern center revealed itself, the potential for disaster was real. It was then that a staff officer to Breckenridge pleaded, put in the cadets. The Kentuckian shot back, they are only children. Milliseconds later, realizing the danger to his force was real, he asked aloud, will they stand? And then, with his hand forced, he reluctantly ordered, put the boys in, and may God forgive me for the order. Under sheets of rain, booming thunder, and jagged bolts of lightning, the cadets of VMI went forward. In a charge with other Confederate units, the cadets plowed forward into fields soaked with rain, so much so that some lost their shoes in the soupy mud, hence the field of lost shoes. They suffered 47 casualties, 10 of which were killed. Their 47 was only three shy of 25% of their complement that day, but the cadets not only helped to carry the day, but in their first battle, in all the rain, they captured one federal field piece. The Battle of New Market was a Confederate victory. That being said, in defeat, Siegel's army was only crippled, not destroyed. Union casualties numbered 96 dead, 520 wounded, and 225 captured and missing. In victory, Breckenridge suffered 43 dead, 474 wounded, and 3 missing. Confederates found solace and military justification in their victory and the use of VMI cadets since the battle was fought on the one-year anniversary of Stonewall Jackson's funeral. For the time being, Lee's breadbasket was spared, but repercussions came quickly. Lee ordered Breckenridge to bring his force east to Hanover Junction, north of Richmond, and on the very day that Breckenridge left the valley, Siegel was replaced by aged yet aggressive Major General David Hunter. Though grim and 62 years of age, he was energetic. Born in Washington City in 1802, Hunter was a member of a prominent Virginia family. A bitter opponent of slavery, his anger was toxic. While serving at Hilton Head along the South Carolina coast earlier in the war, he had freed the slaves, a move that forced Lincoln's hand to countermand the measure. For his anti-slavery acts, the Confederacy declared him an outlaw. The volatile Hunter was a well-trained and experienced officer. Now, in the valley, he took over an estate just north of Strasburg, Bell Grove, and made it his headquarters. Next, he prepared to wage total war in the Shenandoah. On Tuesday, May 24th, when a federal wagon train was fired on near Newtown, eight miles south of Winchester, he sent a mounted detachment to exact punishment and ordered that force to announce Hunter's new policy. He stressed that if an incident like this was repeated, 
The commanding general will cause to be burned every rebel house within five miles of the place at which the firing occurs. Though acts like these were new to the Eastern Theater, Hunter soon stretched his retaliatory orders. He wreaked such vengeance on pro-Confederate citizens that some of his own men were disturbed. We do know that on a few occasions his own men refused to carry out his destructive orders. Once, he even burned a house owned by his own relatives. His acts earned him the nickname Black Dave, and that was coined by his own men. By Thursday, June 2nd, the day before the Union fiasco at Cold Harbor, Hunter's force was near Harrisonburg, and a Confederate force under a new department commander planned to strike. The newly renamed Confederate Department of Southwestern Virginia was now under Brigadier General William E. Grumble Jones. With glittering eyes framed by a bushy beard and balding head, this incredibly caustic Confederate had the look of an Abraham, Moses, or some Old Testament prophet. Some believe his antisocial behavior originated back in 1852, when, as a young United States regular Army cavalry officer, his bride, all of two months, was swept from his arms to her death during a storm at sea. A stickler for drill, he was slovenly in appearance and simply tacked his officer's insignia on his ragged homespun coat. Now in command, he learned that Hunter's Union force was advancing from Strasbourg. The two contesting forces... 5,600 Confederates and 8,500 Federals clashed at the little hamlet of Piedmont, which was about seven miles southwest of Port Republic. Charges and countercharges filled Sunday morning, the 5th of June, but around mid-afternoon, Federal numbers prevailed and Jones' men were routed. In the confusion, Jones was killed. At a cost of only 420, Hunter dealt the Confederacy a blow by inflicting some 600 killed and wounded and capturing another 1,000. With Southern retreat east to Waynesboro, the significance of the situation was not lost on either side. For the first time in the war, the Federals had run of the Shenandoah Valley. Consequences emerged quickly. The next day, the home of Woodrow Wilson who was born in Stanton, Virginia, in 1856, was sacked. And to make matters worse for the Confederacy, federal reinforcements were on the way. On Wednesday, June the 8th, Brigadier General George R. Crook and his Federal Army of the Kanawha arrived from the west. Black Dave's Union force was now up to 18,030 guns. Five days after the bloody Union repulse at Cold Harbor, just northeast of Richmond, Lee could not overlook the crises in the valley. He sent Breckinridge's force west again, and Grant countered. The Federal Lieutenant General ordered two divisions of cavalry to join Hunter at Charlottesville. They were under Major General Philip Henry Sheridan, and the 33-year-old officer carried orders for Hunter to break up the railroad connection between Richmond and the Shenandoah Valley and Lynchburg. Lee upped the ante by dispatching two cavalry divisions under Major General Wade Hampton. 
On Sunday, June 12th, another personality was added to the command chemistry in the valley. Lieutenant General Jubal Anderson Early was ordered to take command, and with him marched Lee's 2nd Corps, many of whom had fought with Jackson in the valley two years before. Early marched fully aware that Lee wanted him to drive Hunter from the Shenandoah, and once done, then drive northward toward Maryland and Washington City. The idea was to repeat what Jackson had accomplished so completely back in 1862. Early, who served as a division commander when Jackson, in that campaign, hailed from Rocky Mount, Virginia. He was a coarse, woman-hating bachelor who possessed a most unbridled tongue. Almost always with a wad of chewing tobacco, he could be quite profane and sarcastic. Enough so that Lee called him my bad old man. Though rough around the edges, he was ambitious and formidable in battle, and he planned to use his 8,000 men to track down and deal with Black Dave Hunter. Meanwhile, Hunter, opting not to follow Grant's advice to move on Charlottesville, drove for Lynchburg. There, like Charlottesville, were Confederate supply depots and rail links to Richmond. On the way there, Hunter and the Union Army of Western Virginia poured into Lexington on Saturday the 11th. By the time Hunter himself actually arrived on the campus of VMI, the looting was in full swing. The next day, Hunter gave the order to burn the buildings and all faculty houses except the one belonging to VMI's superintendent. That's where Hunter set up his headquarters. As one of Hunter's staff noted, the Institute burned out about 2 p.m., and the arsenal blew up with a smart explosion. The general seemed to enjoy the scene. Not far away, Union soldiers gathered at the grave of Stonewall Jackson. They tore down the Confederate flag that flew beside his grave, and its staff was chopped up for souvenirs. One Federal took a pencil and scrawled on the Confederate general's headstone, a good man and a brave soldier, but a traitor to God and his country. On the 18th of June, a Saturday, and the day the siege at Petersburg began back in eastern Virginia, Early, though outnumbered two to one, hit Hunter just outside of Lynchburg. Initially knocked back on their heels, the Union force rallied. But in a fight that created some 940 Federal casualties and inflicted around 500, Hunter believed that early 2nd Corps numbered some 20,000 men and so decided to disengage. He could have retreated to the north, but Hunter feared the Confederate force would have access to rail transportation, and reaching Charlottesville before him meant the possibility of being cut off. So he decided to head west, cross the Alleghenies, and find refuge back in West Virginia. In effect... After some three weeks of posturing, burning, and threatening, David Hunter took himself out of the war, and by doing so, left the door wide open for Lieutenant General Jubal Early to drive northward. And that is exactly what he did. On Sunday, June 26th, his small but mobile force reached Stanton, just a stopping point for a raid that would create panic in Baltimore and Washington City. 
He had some 10,000 organized in four divisions, 4,000 cavalry and 40 guns. His four divisions were under Major Generals John C. Breckinridge, who was 43 years of age, 35-year-old Robert E. Rhodes of Alabama, the Georgian John Brown Gordon, 32, and 27-year-old Lincolnton, North Carolina native Stephen Dodson Ramsour. A rising star, Ramsour had graduated from West Point in the class of 1860 and was now the youngest major general in the Confederate Army. On the 28th, they drove northward, which meant that because the Shenandoah River flows northeastward to Harper's Ferry down the valley. On Tuesday, July 5th, they crossed the Potomac and creating great consternation early decided to play upon it. He exacted retribution for what Hunter had done in the valley. In Hagerstown, Maryland, Confederate cavalry, Brigadier General John McClausland demanded $20,000. With a concerned Maryland, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, and a national capital, Grant down at Petersburg had to respond. Reluctantly, he dispatched to Washington City Major General Horatio Wright's 6th Corps and 3,000 dismounted cavalry. While they made their way north on Saturday, July 9th, the city of Frederick was given Early's financial ultimatum of $200,000 or else. And it was on that Saturday that Early's drive met its first organized resistance. It came in the pitched battle at Monocacy, Maryland, just southeast of Frederick and only some 32 miles from the national capital. Gathered from whatever troops were close by, Major General Lew Wallace, the future author of Ben-Hur, organized a defensive line of some 6,000. They were essentially inexperienced, untrained, and short-term, but they did stand in the way of Early's 10,000. After a stubborn fight, Wallace's pickup force was routed by Early's veterans. Confederate casualties were around 700, and Union fallen totaled nearly 2,000, 1,200 of whom were missing. Though beaten, Wallace's stand bought Wright's 6th Corps 24 hours as they made their way up from Petersburg. But it is also true that Federal retreat at Monocacy left the Confederate route to Washington City wide open. Panic seized Baltimore and Mr. Lincoln's capital. But what many forgot or chose not to remember, Washington City was surrounded by a ring of over 60 forts armed with more than 900 cannon and mortars. Confederate intimidation was real, but capture of Washington was never Never truly a possibility. Jubal Early had maybe 10,000, and although fewer than 10,000 were in blue, some 15,000 of the 6th Corps were marching up for the city. A concerned 16th president wired citizens in Baltimore, let us be vigilant, but keep cool. At Rockville, Maryland, Early turned his force east and on Monday, July the 11th, headed for and captured Silver Spring, Maryland. Early then ordered his raiding army right down 7th Street. It was about midday when they confronted the northernmost fort in the federal defenses around Washington City, Fort Stevens. 
From there, Confederates could see what no other Confederate soldier had seen throughout the war. There, only five miles away, was the dome of the United States Capitol. A feast awaited, but realistically, there could be no harvest. In the extreme heat of the last several days, Early's men were exhausted, and they could not tarry long for fear of running out of supplies and being overwhelmed by Union reinforcements, and that's exactly what occurred mid-afternoon of that same day. Wright's 6th Corps began to file into the defensive lines. The next day, Tuesday the 12th, Early decided to withdraw, but not before one of the war's most tantalizing events. With the Confederates so near, the President and the First Lady traveled to the threatened point. Mr. Lincoln climbed to the parapet of Fort Stevens and, standing beside Major General Horatio Wright, peered toward the Confederate line. He did so, and from the waist up, was exposed to Confederate fire. That got the attention of one Union junior officer, the future jurist Lieutenant Oliver Wendell Holmes, who saw an exposed tall civilian and not realizing who it was, snapped, Get down, you damn fool, before you get shot! Though embarrassed when he learned the true identity of the civilian he was shouting at, the president did follow his advice. Back at Early's headquarters, the abandoned Silver Spring home of Francis Preston Blair, old Jube's hierarchy of high command enjoyed Blair's wine, joked about returning Breckenridge to his former post as president of the Senate, but agreed their time was running out. Aware that his force would have to withdraw the next day, Early did quip to one of his staff, Major, we haven't taken Washington, but we've scared Abe Lincoln like hell. Maybe not the president, but Early's raid had done a number on the U.S. dollar. For on July the 11th, the day his Confederate force confronted Fort Stevens and Washington City, the dollar hit its lowest point in the entire war, 39 cents. On Tuesday the 12th, Jubal Early ordered his pesky force to withdraw. On the 14th, the one-year anniversary of Lee's recrossing the Potomac from Gettysburg, Early's army returned to Virginia at Leesburg. Still, it is remarkable what this little army and its raid accomplished. In two weeks, they had moved to the federal capital and panicked many in the north. But now came the consequences. A frustrated U.S. grant ordered Wright and Hunter to aggressively pursue and added this ominous caveat. He emphatically stated that Hunter should eat out Virginia clear and clean as far as they go so that crows flying over it for the balance of the season will have to carry their provender with them. On Sunday the 24th, Early turned on his pursuers, and at the Second Battle of Kernstown, his troops not only defeated George Crook's Federals, but drove them through Winchester and 12 miles further north to Bunker Hill. Yet again, the Shenandoah was a valley of Union humiliation. Early's men tore up the tracks of the B&O and retaliated once more for Hunter's earlier depredations. 
He sent Confederate cavalry under Brigadier Generals John McCausland and Bradley T. Johnson on a raid to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. There, on Saturday, July 30th, the two demanded $100,000 in gold or $500,000 in greenbacks. When the town could not come up with the money, Chambersburg was torched. Nearly 300 buildings were destroyed. One-third of the town's 6,000 were homeless. There were three Confederate fatalities. One citizen of Chambersburg died, and incredibly, in all the excitement, three babies were born. The damage was estimated at $1.6 million. For Lieutenant General U.S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln, enough was enough. The two met Sunday, the 31st, at Fort Monroe. Exasperated with Jubal Early and federal misfortune in the Shenandoah Valley, both wanted action. Administratively, Grant was frustrated because the Shenandoah was entangled within four separate federal military departments. By the next day, August 1st, there was one department, and Grant insisted it be led by one man, 33-year-old Major General Philip Henry Sheridan. Grant knew his appointment would draw fire. There were many in Washington who thought Sheridan too young. Grant also knew that Hunter might sabotage the appointment from within. To clear that up, the general-in-chief left Petersburg and on Friday, the 5th of August, personally showed up at Hunter's headquarters at Monocacy Junction, 32 miles northwest of Washington City. And he shot straight from the hip. He asked, where is the enemy? Hunter answered that he had no idea. Bad answer. In his defense, the single department was filled with 30,000 men, and Hunter, unaware of the changes coming, had not had time to pull the various commands together. Hunter now learned of the changes made by Lincoln and Grant. He wasn't happy particularly when he learned that Sheridan would take command and he relegated to an administrative role. Immediately, he asked to be relieved, and almost as immediately, the general-in-chief granted his request. The very next day, a Saturday, Philip Sheridan arrived to take command. His orders were simple. Drive early out of the valley and take no orders from anyone other than Ulysses S. Grant. The next day, the 7th, four military departments were officially merged into one and was designated the Middle Military District. Sheridan had 37,000 men and from the Army of the Potomac, two divisions of cavalry. Quite a story for a man who had won his stars the hard way. He was the undersized son of Irish immigrant parents and was an indifferent scholar. At 17, while a clerk in Somerset, Ohio, he received an appointment to West Point. There, he demonstrated dogged determination, but also a hair-trigger temper that gathered him so many demerits that he almost failed to graduate. Once, on the parade ground, he lunged with a bayonet at a cadet sergeant who gave him an order in a tone Sheridan thought insolent. He restrained himself, but when the sergeant reported him, Sheridan attacked him with his fists. 
That episode meant he was suspended from the academy for an entire year. In 1853, he finally graduated, but in the bottom third of his class. He spent the next eight dreary years on frontier duty. And when the war began, he was a commissary officer in Tennessee and Missouri. In 1862, he was promoted to colonel and given a regiment of cavalry. His command style was quite simply aggressive and successful. So much so that four generals recommended him for a star. Their collective comment was, Brigadier scarce, good ones scarcer. He is worth his weight in gold. Sheridan got his star. A second one came five months later, after his successful handling of a division at Perryville and Stones River. At Chickamauga, he was conspicuous and caught Grant's eye at Chattanooga. It was at Missionary Ridge when he not only led his command up the steep slopes, but pursued Bragg's Confederate army as it retreated into Georgia. When Grant went east, he made only one change in the Army of the Potomac's command structure. Sheridan would command the cavalry. It was when he came east that Sheridan met Lincoln, the 16th president, who always had a folksy approach, described him as a brown, chunky little chap and not enough neck to hang him, and such long arms that if his ankles itch, he can scratch them without stooping. Indeed, Sheridan was only about 5'7 and weighed some 117 pounds. His head was abnormally large and misshapen by a bump on the back of his hairline. His eyes were black, fierce, and he exuded energy and determination. Indeed, as one described him, he was a little mountain of combative force. He arrived in the valley to assume command on the 6th of August. By the 10th, he moved on Winchester. But then, strangely, five weeks of Union advance and retreat. Though he explained he was probing for Confederate weaknesses, some wondered if this was yet another chapter of Federal timidity in the valley. A concerned Grant personally went to visit him. But after chatting, the general-in-chief left convinced that his man was the right one for the right job. It didn't hurt that he had assistance from a new generation of young, tough, and aggressive cavalry officers. 27-year-old Brigadier General James H. Wilson, Brigadier General Wesley Merritt, and Brigadier General George Armstrong Custer. Sheridan also had something that separated good generals from excellent ones. He had the ability to inspire an almost mythical devotion. And by doing so, these officers became military extensions of their commander's energy and aggression, and it filtered all the way down to the common soldiers of his army. Across the way, the five weeks of advance and retreat led Jubal early to believe his new counterpart was nothing more than a continuation of vacillating federal leadership, and so, once again, crossed the Potomac on Thursday, August 25th. Sheridan promptly countered by sending cavalry. Though they were kept at arm's length, Early, aware that Sheridan could cut off his line of retreat, recrossed the Potomac and encamped around Bunker Hill, Virginia. 
the two shadow boxed until on Sunday, September 18th, Sheridan put together an attack on Confederate-held Winchester. While he did, Early was in Martinsburg, 20 miles to the north, where he found and read some messages in a local telegraph office. One must have unnerved him, for he learned that Grant had recently been there to visit, and that could only mean a call for action. Thoroughly alarmed, he ordered the two divisions he had back to Winchester to reunite his army of the valley. Sure enough, at 3 a.m. on Monday the 19th, Sheridan struck, and so the Third Battle of Winchester, or Opaquan Creek, began. Men in blue fared well at first. Common soldiers were energized by Sheridan's presence near the front. Then, behind the lines, Federal infantry became ensnarled, and Jubal Early took advantage of the confusion. By 10 a.m., he had strengthened his Confederate line. By noon, Sheridan had untangled his tactical problems and sent more men in, but they ran straight into Early's strongly reinforced positions. Early's officers shifted their attack, and in doing so, created a gap, and Early's men not only saw it, but hit it. Led by Gordon and Rhodes, it had strength. In the attack, however, Rhodes was struck by a shell fragment and mortally wounded. Gordon assumed command of Rhodes' men and all surged forward. Sheridan saw it, but understood the arithmetic of battle. He had some 30,000 men at hand and was aware that Early had only around 14,000. In the vortex of Gordon's charge, one Union brigadier, David Russell, led a counterattack. Shot in the chest, he continued to urge his men forward until a Confederate shell fragment struck him within inches of his first wound, and it tore through his heart. Yet, the Union counterstrike restored the Federal line, and then a lull. That lull was interrupted by a concerted Union attack ordered by Sheridan. The 2 p.m. assault wounded two Confederate officers of note. One was a Virginian by the name of Colonel George S. Patton, Sr., who was mortally wounded, and yes, grandfather to George S. Patton of World War II renown. Another was Lee's nephew, Lieutenant General Fitzhugh Lee, and though not mortal, his wound was serious. Sheridan was able to orchestrate the military home run, double envelopment. As both Confederate flanks were turned, Sheridan seemed to be everywhere. A cavalry attack led by Merritt and Brigadier General William Averill was the coup de grace. Early's Confederates broke. That Monday night of September the 19th, the town of Winchester, Virginia, changed hands for the 73rd and final time of the war. Darkness put an end to pursuit. Early's casualties were about 4,000, more than one quarter of his army. 2,000 of that total captured. Sheridan lost 5,018, numerically more, but far less percentage-wise. The next day, Early had his survivors in a strong defensive position at Fisher's Hill, known to many as the Gibraltar of the valley. Undaunted, Sheridan advanced. Aware that Fisher's Hill was too rugged to assault, Sheridan proposed another turning movement, and on Thursday, September the 22nd, he struck. 
pressed, Early began to withdraw, but as he did, Brigadier General George Crook's concealed Federal cavalry attacked. For the second time in three days, Jubal Early's Army of the Valley was routed from a defensive position. Twenty guns abandoned, and some 1,200 Confederates were casualties, the majority of them captured. Victory on the field was not enough. Sheridan gave chase all through the night. Early's withdrawal took him to Woodstock, to Harrisonburg, to Port Republic, and then into refuge within the Blue Ridge Mountains. News of Sheridan's two victories in such a narrow window of time spread, and down at Petersburg, U.S. Grant ordered the firing of a 100-gun salute all along his siege lines. Both Grant and Sheridan believed the Valley campaign was over. The question was, what to do next? The general-in-chief wanted Sheridan to destroy the Virginia Central Railroad, but Sheridan begged to differ. Rather than destroy the means of conveyance for supplies to Richmond and Lee's army, he wanted, as he withdrew to Strasburg, to destroy the very crops that would be transported. Given permission, thus began a campaign that made Philip Sheridan as hated in the Shenandoah Valley as William Sherman in Georgia, South and North Carolina. For those that lived in the valley and their descendants, the fall of 1864 would be remembered as the time of the burning. It began Monday, September 26th, when cavalry was sent to strip Stanton of all armaments, provisions, and military equipment. Three days later, Sheridan gave orders to burn all the forage, mills, and such property as might be serviceable to the rebel army between Stanton and Harrisonburg. No question, the war had taken a turn. Destruction now embraced not only those in uniform, but citizens who simply were in the wrong place at the wrong time. An example of the ugliness came Monday, October 3rd, when as reprisal for the ambush and shooting death of 22-year-old Lieutenant John R. Meigs, the son of U.S. Quartermaster General Montgomery Meigs, Sheridan ordered the burning of every house within a five-mile radius of the town where the incident took place, Dayton, Virginia. That order went to Custer. For that act, Confederates retaliated eight days later. Two more of Sheridan's aides were ambushed and mortally wounded. Back on Wednesday the 5th of October, a 20-mile-long line of Federal cavalry spread out in a fan from North Mountain in the west to the Blue Ridge in the east and put to torch every conceivable source of food and possible comfort to the enemy. Barns, granaries, haystacks, mills. Sheridan reported the burning of 2,000 barns, 120 mills, half a million bushels of grain, and confiscation of 50,000 head of livestock. Indeed, the war had turned ugly. Very ugly. The news of the destruction so enraged Jubal Early that he vowed retribution and so re-entered the valley. His army stalked Sheridan's, and on Sunday, October the 9th, two opposing mounted elements clashed. It was Custer and his West Point Confederate friend, Brigadier General Thomas L. Rosser. We know it as the Battle of Tom's Brook. For two hours, the two cavalry forces fought. 
It was decided when Custer turned Rosser's left and simultaneously struck Rosser's center. Victorious, Custer pursued his retreating foe for some 26 miles, giving rise to the mockingly known name for the battle, the Woodstock Races. Early was extremely caustic of Rosser and his cavalry's route. Meanwhile, on Monday, October the 10th, Sheridan, completing his path of destruction as ordered, camped his force at Cedar Creek, which was just north of Strasburg. Encamped, he and his men expected no action in the immediate future. Jubal Early did. As he moved toward Sheridan, administrative issues hit the Federal Army of the Shenandoah's commander. Betwixt orders from Grant at Petersburg and Halleck in Washington City, a meeting was called in the nation's capital, and Sheridan was ordered to attend. He left his army the 15th, a Saturday. Sixth Corps Commander Major General Horatio Wright was left in charge of the Federal force there at Cedar Creek. Wright had some 31,000 men. Early rolled forward with reinforcements that inflated his Army of the Valley to 21,000. From a mountain vantage point, Major General John Gordon saw an enormous opportunity. If men of his army could get through thick woods, along the steep ridges and across Cedar Creek, they could roll up the Federal left. Down below him, indeed, the Federal Army of the Shenandoah, now temporarily under right. Under him, the Union Sixth Corps was now under Brigadier General James B. Ricketts. Detachments of the 19th Corps were under Brigadier General William H. Emery. The Army of West Virginia, or otherwise known as the Eighth Corps, was under George Crook, and three divisions of cavalry were under Major General Alfred T. A. Torbert. In all, some 31,610 effectives and 90 guns. Encamped, those in blue did not expect attack, but that is exactly what was coming. Early agreed to Gordon's assessment, and so began the deployment. Gordon would attack the Federal left with three divisions. Coming right up the valley, Pike and striking the Union Center would be Early himself with the two remaining Confederate infantry divisions. Again, Confederate cavalry would simultaneously strike both enemy flanks. In the early hours of Wednesday, October the 19th, Gordon and another Confederate divisional commander, Major General Stephen Dodson Ramsour, watched soldiers in Butternut and Gray move to the jumping-off point for their attack. While that unfolded, Ramsour and Gordon fell into small talk. The North Carolinian had just received word that his wife of about a year had just given birth to a baby girl. The new father was excited and hoped that victory here might win him a furlough to go home and visit. At 4.30, the morning of October the 19th, under cover of a dense fog, Gordon gave the order for his men to move forward. Thirty minutes later, and howling the hair-raising rebel yell, they swept forward and indeed rolled the Federal left. Seven Union guns were captured and turned on them. Meanwhile, Early plowed forward and struck the enemy's center, and Rosser's Confederate cavalry hit Custer and Merritt on the Federal right. Though Custer and Merritt blunted the Southern cavalry attack, five Confederate infantry divisions steamrolled. 
Before the Confederate wave, some federal units did fall back with some degree of order, but others were routed, and their headlong retreat hampered units in the rear to organize and resist. From 7 to 9 a.m., Jubal Early was on the verge of reviving Confederate hopes in the Shenandoah Valley. Wright's and Ricketts' 6th Corps battled to buy time. Then came, as in every battle, a moment when decisions were made that would ensure victory or dilute it. As the fight reached noon, Gordon wanted a renewed organized Confederate attack, but Early thought his men were spent and worried, as he should have been, of Federal cavalry poised to strike his exposed left flank. A new attack would also take time. Indeed, some of the Confederates had stopped while moving through Union camps, pillaging and latching onto supplies, the like of which they had not seen in months. Early and Gordon argued bitterly. While they did, something was developing in the Union rear. Sheridan had returned, having arrived on the field about 10.30 that morning. The conference he had attended ended up in Washington City the day before. He took a special train to Martinsburg, then rode to Winchester with a 300-man cavalry escort. He spent the night of the 18th, 19th, 15 miles from Bell Grove, which was situated in the middle of the battlefield. A picket awakened him around 6 a.m. of the 19th, but since he had ordered cavalry reconnaissance, he thought the sound of cannon was his. But the firing grew in intensity. He dressed, called for his Mount Rienzi, and so began one of the most famous rides in American military history. He raced forward into the middle of his army's chaos. Men who had fled the battlefield saw him, stopped, cheered, rallied, turned, and followed him back to the fighting. The moment was electric. When he came upon one of his lieutenants, Major General William Emery, Emery assumed Sheridan was organizing an orderly retreat north to Winchester. And Sheridan flared, Retreat hell! We'll be back in our camps tonight! He immediately began to pull troops and commands together and organized a counterattack. Two hours later, he had a solid line which faced Confederate troops who were caught in the limbo created by the argument between Gordon and Early. Ready to advance, Sheridan rode up and down his entire two-mile-long line, and with cap in hand, he repeated over and over, I'll get a twist on these people yet. We'll raise them out of their boots before the day is over. A personal display of dash and resolve was the thing legends are made of. It was about 4 p.m., and on a battlefield that contained some 45,000 men, all knew that the tipping point had arrived. Sheridan ordered the blue wave forward, and its effect was to wash everything away in front of it. Early's Confederates, who believed victory was theirs this day, buckled, broke. In the very center of the Confederate line, one unit tried to stem the tide. It was the men of Ramsour. That day he had placed a flower in his lapel to honor his newborn daughter. Before his troops, he galloped back and forth until his horse was shot out from under him. He mounted another, and soon it too went down. As he tried to mount a third horse, a Union bullet found its mark, piercing both his lungs. Carried to the rear, his line disintegrated. 
In the midst of this confusion, now Merritt and Custer's Federal Cavalry struck, and the effect was final. As one Union observer put it, flesh that is born of woman could not stand such work as this. Early's army stopped fighting and now thought only of escape. Little Phil Sheridan had turned defeat into glorious victory. While the pursuit of the defeated Confederates continued, one captured wagon revealed the wounded presence of Ramsour. He was taken to the Bell Grove Plantation, where doctors administered dosages of laudanum. During the evening of the 19th, men in blue who were comrades at West Point came to pay their respects. One was Captain Henry DuPont. Another was Brigadier General Wesley Merritt. And joining them was George Custer. Ramsour's last words were, Bear this message to my precious wife. I die a Christian and hope to meet her in heaven. Today, he rests in Lincolnton, North Carolina, in St. Luke's Episcopal Cemetery. One who might have thought death merciful was Jubal Early. He and his survivors made it back to Fisher's Hill, where they fought off pursuit, and then retreated south all the way to Newmarket. Old Jubilee's army had nearly been destroyed. In effect, it ceased to be an effective fighting force. His army of the valley had suffered nearly 3,000 casualties, 1,860 killed and wounded, and over 1,000 captured. In victory, Sheridan suffered 5,665 casualties, 664 killed, and 3,340 wounded. Again, though numerically more, be reminded they outnumbered Early's force nearly two to one. The fight at Cedar Creek put an effective exclamation point. The Shenandoah Valley was firmly within federal control. Little Phil's ride captivated the North's imagination. There were countless retellings of the story, and poet Thomas Buchanan reads Sheridan's ride not only memorialized Sheridan and the victory at Cedar Creek, but trumpeted the feeling that the war was winnable and gave Lincoln's re-election bid one last shot in the arm. There would be one more military encounter in the valley, and that came in March of 1865. Sheridan met early on the second day of that month, at the Battle of Waynesboro, and by then, Early's Confederate force was nothing but a nuisance, and at this battle, it was almost captured in its entirety. By late winter of 1865, Jubal Early had fallen from grace in the hearts and minds of the Southern people. The fall so great that Robert E. Lee was pressured to relieve him of his command. In symbolic sense, the plight of VMI and her young cadets serve as a percussive undertone for the Confederacy's fortune in the Daughter of the Stars, the Shenandoah Valley. Filled with pride and valor, her campus and cadets fell victim to the might of the Union Army. Yet, every May 15th, on the anniversary of the Battle of New Market, they remember the commitment and the sacrifice. As usual on that day, there is roll call. But then, ten additional names are added. Atwell, Cabell, Crockett, 
Hatsfield, Haynes, Jefferson, Jones, McDowell, Stannard, Wheelwright. For each name, a specially designated cadet honoree steps forward and responds, Dead on the field of honor, sir. Like the Confederacy, and like those who fought and defended the Shenandoah Valley. Gone. But even to this day, not forgotten. Few may be aware of this ship that terrorized Union whalers as far away as the Bering Strait. Captained by a North Carolina native, this raider on the high seas was the last major Confederate cruiser to set sail and the last to surrender. Of all places in Liverpool, England, and almost seven months after Appomattox. When next we gather, this is the story of a southern vessel that circumnavigated the globe. This is the story of the CSS Shenandoah. We welcome into the family of threads from the National Tapestry two new patrons. And thank you so very, very much from all of us who work so hard to present what we do. Colby Gale from Manchester, Connecticut, thank you for your interest and your support. And who knew that a lunch along Franklin Street would lead to Farley and Roger Bernholtz being patrons. Thank you both. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.